Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. Our show this week is Cowboy Professionalism, a Cultural Study of Big Mountain Tourism in the Last Frontier, presented by the University of Alaska Southeast. The speaker today is Forrest Wagner, an assistant professor of outdoor studies at UAS. He'll discuss his findings from interviewing Big Mountain guides and their clients and reflect on 12 years of teaching outdoor studies. This was recorded at the Egan Library in Juneau on October 19th. Dr. Kevin Krein, head of the UAS Outdoor Studies Program, speaks first. Welcome to everybody. Thanks for coming. I think we're all in for, for a treat tonight with Forrest's presentation. Um, I, I've known Forrest since the early 2000s when, when he came here to UAS as an undergraduate student. And um, so, so Forrest, I'm going to say a few words about that before talking about what he's done since then. But, but Forrest was a challenging student. Um, and and not, not, because he, I mean, he, not because he was really smart or um, always well prepared or really willing to, to question and challenge his instructors, because he, he was all of those things, but um, more because he was so serious and committed and sincere um, about learning and about solving problems and about social justice in the classroom. And I, I, again, I feel like I've always been committed to my discipline and to those things, but Forrest was the kind of student that, um, or yeah, that would make you feel like maybe you weren't serious enough, or maybe you hadn't prepared enough, or maybe you weren't, you weren't putting in as much work as your students were. And that, that's really something that I think, um, yeah, is really, he's carried through his, his whole career. So since then, um, he, he came here, like I said, in um, 2001, I think, or 2002, and, and was graduating around 2003. He went to... Um, to the Himalayas, to Nepal, as an assistant guide. And um, then he graduated, and the following year, we actually asked him to come back and work for us, and he said no. He, he was doing other things and was, was kind of busy. And then so we hired somebody else in the position. The, the person was around for a few years. That person left, and we called for us back and basically begged him to come for a year. And he agreed to come for a year, and this was in 2006, and he's, he's still here now, and I think we're really lucky to, to have him. Um, anybody who's in his classes, I'm sure, who's taken any class from Forrest would, would agree with me about that. Um, he has guided really all over the world at this point, is um, incredibly talented as, as a high-altitude guide. And um, anyway, he's incredibly talented as a high-altitude guide. He's also an amazing instructor. He, he works, so he regularly guides on Denali and teaches courses for um, Alaska Mountaineering School in Talkeetna, and he also teaches courses for Alaska Avalanche School in addition to us, and he teaches a, a whole variety of courses for, for us, both um, now in, in the outdoor um, arena and then also academic courses. And, and that's really difficult to do, I think, to, to span that um, or to be that diverse in, in your skills. But I think in, in both of his academic classes and his skills classes, what, what people would say to him, about him is, again, that he brings that kind of 
commitment and sincerity and um, feels obviously very deeply for his students and and his scholarly work is the same way. So what we're going to see tonight is a presentation that on um, his his research into big mountain tourism in Alaska. And, and again, I, I think something that's really special about Forrest's work in this area is, is how much it brings together um, really good, solid research with kind of personal experience and um, understanding of the culture and its culture that he's you know, grown up in and worked, worked in and has a career in. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I'm really excited about this. So Forrest, yeah. Thanks, Kevin. That was really kind. So this is, this is my talk, Cowboy Professionalism, uh, Cultural Study of Big Mountain Tourism in the Last Frontier. Yeah, my, my scholarly work into what really is an unstudied culture, this culture of Big Mountain guiding, um, both the, the climbing and skiing of mountains. So that's, that's what's in store. So topics are, are landscape and the construction of place identity, cultural analysis of Big Mountain tourism, and then finally conclusions for Northern Studies um, and for the environmental humanities, of which uh, I represent. I work in the humanities department here at the University of Alaska Southeast. And, and this is a group of students in the mountaineering course um, skiing off the Juneau Ice Field, this geographically unique, unique ice cap that's just uh, to our east. And Angelo Squires took the photo. Uh, Angelo and Zach Fisher are going to come up a couple times in the presentation. They were students here, and this past year they completed this same climb that me and a partner did in, in 2009 where we, we went up this ridge... And we went across and down the other side on this on this large mountain in prominence. It's you know one of the largest mountains in the world in in, in horizontal and vertical relief. And and apparently no one had done that since me. And it was really remarkable to hear from Angelo as fishing in Bristol Bay. And he said, "Yeah, we we did it. We climbed Logan. We we climbed the East Ridge. We traversed across." And I, I'm really I'm really proud of them for the commitment to that project. So I'm asking the Humanities 120 students to think about place. And the place des definition that's most resonated for me over time is this one from Tom Thornton, who is currently our dean in the School of Arts and Sciences. But this is from his, his work, Being in Place Amongst the Clinket. And it's a really simple definition that place is a frame space meaningful to a person or group over time. You know, thinking about UAS as this remarkable university with remarkable people where students have the opportunity to work face-to-face -face with, with scholars and specialists. That's, that's really unique. Here at UAS, we have Ernestine Hayes. She's the Writer Laureate of Alaska. In the 1950s, the Writer Poet Laureate of Alaska was John Haynes, and his work has always spoken to me, and I had the, the real privilege to meet him and, and go to his, his uh, homestead on the Richardson. I grew up in Fairbanks and in the interior part of the state. And John has this to say about, about place. He says, on the evidence of my own experience, I believe that one of the most important metaphors of our time is the journey out of wilderness into culture, into the forms of our complicated and divided age with its intense confusions and deceptions. 
the eventual disintegration of these cultural forms returns us once more to wilderness. This journey can be seen as both a fall and as reconciliation. And place, once again, means actual place, but also a state of mind, of consciousness. Once that place is established, we carry it with us as we do a sense of ourselves. And so in my research, I had some, some central questions. Is the mountain experience diminished by including people who pay the climber to guide them? Does Big Mountain Tourism in Alaska commercialize Alaska's spectacular geography in a way that, in fact, diminishes it? Do Big Mountain Tourism participants identify with Alaska's environment and culture or merely seek outdoor thrills? And this photo is of the Janae Basin, the advanced base camp on the west buttress of Denali, and the mountains in the back of Foraker and Crossan, and they're used as visual barometers for incoming weather off the Pacific. So if you're, if you're on Denali climbing and you see lenticular caps or mountain waves or really any kind of cloud action moving over these mountains, as you're looking to the south, it, it, it means that weather's changing and you should perhaps reconsider moving, maybe shore up your tent, build a wall. To prepare myself for this project, I spent a long time reading and studying depictions of Alaska in literature, and I, I narrowed it down to two different periods, this sort of exceptional Alaska that we, that we see and read from Jack London and, and John Marshall, and, and, and Alaska as this wild natural spaces is popularized by John Muir, so he goes there too. And then this second category of folks like John Haynes and Sidney Huntington and Margaret Muir and, and, and John McPhee with coming into the country. And in, that, in that second period, there's the Statehood Act, there's, there's the Claims Act, there's the Lands Act, and suddenly Alaska is this designated space. It's, it's effectively locked up. It's, it's moved into 65% federal land that is in preservation or conservation status. Um, state has some, Alaska Natives have some, but, but pre-statehood, that, that really wasn't the case here, and, and that's interesting to me uh, as a Northern Studies scholar. And then I also needed to unpack wilderness and frontier, and many people think they're the same thing, uh, but they're not. They are similar in that they're constructed. They're not, they're not exactly real, and I'm, I'm an advocate for wilderness, but it's, it's made up. We thought it up. Uh, one of the great ironies of wilderness is that it doesn't include people. Frontier includes people. So one has no people, the other has people. Neither one really accounts for the fact that people were here and are here. And, and so, in fact, wilderness in Alaska is um, ironic at best. It's an inhabited wilderness. Indigenous people have lived here for uh, five or six millennia. So if, beginning to unpack what these uh, kind of cultural notions are and how they relate to uh, our identities and insecurities. And then finally, I needed to define tourism and decide whether or not what I was participating in was its own niche form. And tourism is another uh, interesting hour-long conversation in itself. I I went back to um, Daniel Borstein's Image, the guide of pseudo events. It came out in the 1950s. This is where we come out with this traveler versus tourist dichotomy. And of course, the traveler is the real, authentic person going from this place to that place and spending time. And 
perhaps learning the language and all of that's kind of garbage to me. I think that's all tourism, but, but you're absolutely uh, entitled to disagree. This image is um, of Shot Tower in the central Brooks Range. I took a, a capstone class here in 2014 and we climbed this ridge, the west ridge of Shot Tower. The Aragetch is, is, uh, is rich in the romance of Alaska climbing culture. We had David Roberts and uh, John Krakauer, among others, popularizing the area in the 1960s and 1970s as this sort of last, unquote unquote, explored granite area in North America. And, and so this, this climb on Shaw Tower is, is on uh, impeccable granite, 12 pitches long, um, above the Arctic Circle. And it was, of course, raining most of the time that we were there. Mosquitoes were really thick, but, but we persevered and, and climbed the thing. And in the process, I think, had a really um, rich experience in the Arctic, which is a very fragile ecosystem, and I felt very, very lucky to be there. This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is Cowboy Professionalism, a cultural study of big mountain tourism in the last frontier. The speaker is Forrest Wagner, assistant professor of outdoor studies at the University of Alaska Southeast. John Muir says, how delightful it is, how it makes one's pulses bound to get back into the reviving Northland wilderness, how truly wild it is, and how joyously one's heart responds to the welcome it gives, its water and mountains shining and glowing like enthusiastic human faces. Talk of mysteries, think of our life in nature, daily to be shown matter, to come in contact with it, rocks, trees, wind in our cheeks. The solid earth, the actual world, the common sense, contact, contact. Who are we? Where are we? And so Thoreau is really grappling with the sort of actual lived experience of mountaineering. You know, most of these transcendentalists, uh, Thoreau's Emerson's protege, they're, they're hanging out and it's pretty urban. Thoreau lives in the wilderness on a lake. It's a suburb of Boston. It's not, it's not John Muir's wild nature, right? It's, it's this kind of New England perspective with very pastoral fields, and they're really gripped by clouds. And, but there is something disorienting that's hard to put our fingerprint on with these experiences, these embodied experiences we have outside in nature. It's too hot. It's too cold, we're frightened, we're excited. On that climb on Logan in 2009, I was as out there as I've ever been, and it was this way. We were elated and terrified, and those emotions are, are, are powerful and hard to, hard to capture, I think. So what makes this tourism? Two things, really. Alaska's geographic features, and then the cultural traits itself of, of the industry. Alaska has unique terrain. Nowhere else in the United States do climbers spend weeks traveling up glaciers to position themselves on their climbing objective. 
is an exhibition format necessary here and, and really different from the contiguous United States. You know, it takes three days to climb Mount Rainier, maybe four if you're giving yourself time to um, acclimatize. It takes three weeks with good weather and, and some gumption to climb Denali, and Logan is the same way. It's just they're high mountains you have to acclimatize, and the horizontal distance traveled is uh, upwards of 20 or 30 miles. And, you know, similarly, thinking about um, the, coastal, the coastal mountains, there's really nowhere else in the world where snow sticks at such high angles as here. And that, and that fuels um, the big mountain skiing, the extreme skiing that, that begins in Valdez and is in Haines and is here in Juneau. And, and so both of those things, the big mountains, the snow sticking on uh, steep slopes, create this desire by the world to come here and, and recreate in this way, this climbing, skiing way. It's a mystique. It draws guides, draws clients, and each group has unique characteristics. Alaskan guides are elite, objectively, and consider the most, considered the most specialized expedition climbers and, and extreme skiers in the world. Um, their clients are not mass tourism participants of the cruise ship or train and bus variety. They associate Alaska's big mountain culture with self-reliance, a quality required in wilderness, and on a frontier. So in this way, it is niche. Alaska is also a node in cosmopolitan networks of sport. Indeed, Talkeetna and Valdez are as iconic for big mountain enthusiasts as Chamonix, France, the birthplace of Western mountaineering. So Talkeetna is, of course, the, the gateway to the central Alaska range where Denali is. Um, Valdez is, is the beginning of, of helicopter skiing in the state. Alaska's Big Mountain Mystique comes as much from the solitude-inducing potential of its wild places as its community, its global community of similarly-minded mountain sport enthusiasts. So I'm a social scientist. I'm also a humanist. It's a tension. It's not exactly cool. Um, <laughs> to get my information to feel like it's factual, I need more information than just assertion and reason. And so I wanted to talk to people about what they thought about big mountain tourism in Alaska. And so I ran surveys of clients. I spent hours and hours and hours interviewing mountain guides. And then I, I also used my own life experience. So what do surveys consist of? Well, you need demography questions. So I gathered information about age, gender, income. And then I had a, a multivariable assertion. So... These statements, are they important or not, not important? And with three general trends, this is, this is for clients. Motivations for engaging in mountain tourism. It's a historic photo from Brian Okanek, uh, who is one of the six concessions, original concessions on Denali in, in Denali National Park. And, and a, a resident in Talkeetna, Alaska, Brian and Diane, owned Alaska Denali Guiding, and then sold it in the late 90s to the Alaska Mountaineering School. And, and that business is still one of the few locally owned uh, mountain guiding operations on Denali. And finally, motivations for traveling to engage in mountain tourism, because this is one of those global things. You know, be, before airplanes, it was trains. Before trains, I mean, just imagine how much we travel 
in 2018. It's like these tools that make the global flow occur are time machines. So I surveyed clients and I interviewed guides. Those interviews uh, were open-ended but had a set series of questions because I'm trying to get certain information while also giving people the room to tell me what they think. And so I was asking guides their motivations for working in big mountain tourism. This is Kyle Thompson, uh, Karen Goldberg-Bell, and Matt Krisiak. And we're at 7,000 feet on the Sheep Glacier, looking up at that feature. It's called the Cleaver. There's three ice falls where the, the glacier's broken. Travel up the glacier. The summit of Sanford is not in the picture, 16,000 feet tall. And the Sheep Glacier from summit to uh, its terminus at 4,000 feet is 14 miles long. And, and so skiing from the top, to the terminus makes us the longest ski descent of any mountain on the planet. And so part of what I'm trying to demonstrate is that Alaska's geography, its physical geography, is in fact unique. I also asked guides about their experience and, and management of risk in the mountains. And so here's a group coming off of a traverse of Denali. And of course they have to cross the McKinley River because on the north side of Denali Park it's designated wilderness. There's no there's no plane pickup. Um, there's only one road in and out. It's sort of the latest version in the history of what national parks will do with land. Uh, and so there's, there's no front country tourism in this part of Denali Park, unlike what you see in Yosemite or, or Yellowstone, where there are roads most places. And then finally, I asked guides about changes they'd observed over time in big mountain tourism. And here's Zach Fisher. And I saw Zach Fisher last week. He's guiding professionally in Yosemite. It is an, another iconic place in the nodes of sport that make this, that make this interesting in a cosmopolitan way. Um, he's preparing for a climb. Um, we went on Denali in 2015, and, and one of the realities with this exhibition climbing is you have too much stuff to put all in your backpack. So if you fall into a crevasse, then you're going to self-rescue out. These are skills that we teach and practice. And the difference is, unlike here on the Mendenhall or on mini glaciers, you've got so much stuff, you've got equipment in a sled. And so if you fall into the crevasse, the sled needs to be arrested on the rope behind you with, you know, with a prusik or something similar. And then when you're going to self-rescue, you have to jump the sled. It's a total pain in the butt. It doesn't, doesn't really work very well. But that's what we're practicing. And, and the final data point is my own life. As some of you know, I was uh, attacked by a brown bear in April of 2016. I was teaching a mountaineering course above Haines. And so as affirming as these experiences in mountains are, this is a a very real reminder of, of consequence. And people ask me often if I think about the bear and if I have bad dreams, and, and I don't. I don't have bad dreams. I've never had bad dreams. What I think about the bear is that she smelled great. <laughs> and so what I think, what, what happened is I skied over her den. It was about 3,000 feet um, early April, two, two and a half years ago, and 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 then and I was putting in a in a track a, a a ski track for my class. We're descending from climbing Mount Emmerich and and 
dropped my gear and was ascending back to the class. So I had skis on my Alp skins on my Alpine touring skis, and this bear came up the hill slowly. I stood tall. I waved. I yelled. I said, "Hey, bear!" And she didn't really know what to make of me. So what I think I did is I skied over her den, and like most mothers, she was concerned about her cubs. Uh, I think there was only one cub, but I'm not sure. Anyway, she attacked me. She grabbed my leg. She pulled me down. What was a very, very steep angle of repose. We wrestled for a while, and it was probably only a matter of seconds, but we fell vertically 350 feet, and uh, the first half of that, I was resisting. I was fighting. I punched her in the nose. I hit her with my whippet, which is a self-arrest pull. Um, and then the second half of it, I realized that you don't win wrestling brown bears. That's not a good strategy. And, and I had this little voice. It wasn't like an out-of-body experience. It was a little voice like, brown bear forest, play dead. So I played dead. And then we rolled off a small cliff. It was just small. And that impact knocked the anger out of her. And I remember very clearly her standing up and looking at me. And I'm laying in this L position and... She looked at me and snorted and walked out of the drainage and snorted and walked away. And that was that. And I would have died right there had my mountaineering class not been close and had our risk management and another, a number of other weather and really fortunate sort of good luck factors come into play. But, but when I think about the bear, I don't, I don't hold any hostility or resentment towards her and... As you can probably surmise, I surveyed clients from the mountaineering school and, and from Alaska Powder Descents. Clients were predominantly male, earning more than $100,000 a year, and visitors to Alaska. They were most strongly motivated to participate in big mountain culture because it occurs outside and it makes them feel alive. Clients were not strongly motivated by thrill-seeking or risk-taking. In fact, this group hired mountain guides to manage the hazards of Alaska's mountain environs in acknowledgement of their inherent risks, believing it very important to be safety-conscious. Visiting climber clients were not concerned with Alaska's culture of rugged individualism and did not think of the place as a last frontier, but did believe the state was different from elsewhere, pristine and wilderness, motivations that inspired their desire to mountaineer here. Climbers, on the other hand, were more goal-oriented than skiers, uh, whereas skiers were more group-oriented than climbers, which is actually a kind of a, a gut assumption I have, and, and it seems to play out. I mean, climbers, like, there's the summit, you go to the summit, skiers are like, hey, let's go skiing. <laughs> so the guides felt called, feel called, to be in the mountains. As a group, they make far less than clients, are predominantly male with some noteworthy exceptions and begin climbing or skiing when most children learn to walk. Like their clients, guides cited their love of being outside, participating in their chosen sport as a primary motivation for big mountain employment. But there's, there's actually a mountain guide in the audience who shared this uh, quote on the board as part of their interview, and it's, it's stuck with me. But that individual said, I've never been someone that works a job just for money where I don't actually enjoy the job itself. When guiding, I identify the people that are going to benefit from the trip who are participating for the same reasons that I am, to be outside and in the mountains. Focus on sharing the mountains and don't worry about the paycheck. 
Unlike clients, guides from Alaska and guides from elsewhere who guide here in many cases believe their work was occurring on a modern-day frontier and thought of themselves as pioneers in a broader Alaskan mythos. So the clients don't think this. The guides think this. Alaskan guides are self-reliant, quote, they share a sense of pride about being Alaskan, being a guide from here. They're hardier than the average and enjoy the unique challenges of mountaineering in such an extreme place. There's a cowboy professionalism up here. Guides were at times uncomfortable with their participation in the commercialization and popularization of mountain culture. So Alaska Range trips have grown significantly since the 1980s when the concessions were established. Valdez Heli skiing, uh, following the first extreme skiing championship in 91 or 92, um, become their own industry by the mid-1990s. And then really it's, it's the Everest disaster that Krakow popularizes into thin air that, that begins this seven summit circuit where, where client climbers are, are spending real money to hire mountain guides to travel around the world to each of the high peaks and climb the mountain. So this popularization of this culture also includes uh, advances in equipment. Skis are easier to ride. Uh, boots are more comfortable. It's global. This change threatens the self-regulating cowboy professional of the region, demanding they standardize, much as when other trades gained in popularity, transitioning from small-scale artisan specialization to larger-scale guild or, or union organization. For reasons of esprit de corps, guides most enjoyed sharing the mountains with clients and students. The camaraderie developed in the expedition setting made lifetime friendships and social connections relating well to notions of psychological wellness attained through shared responsibility and common goals. And here we are at 8,000 feet on the Kanik Glacier waiting for this 20-day storm to pass so that we could try and climb uh, Marcus Baker, which is the high peak in the Chugach. It didn't happen. We were snowbound. This group had a great time. As the bear attack illustrates, Alaska's big mountain tourism is a crossroads between its cowboy past and credentialed future. And even a highly structured credentialed environment like an ODS outdoor classroom can give way to a cowboy moment like fighting a bear while falling off a cliff, a tension that will continue to set the outdoor profession in Alaska in a class of its own. So my conclusions from this research, I think that both big mountain tourism and Alaska are a historical moment. The recent popularity of Alaska's big mountain tourism has prompted a historical moment, one in which the future of the industry will be decided. The important findings here are of a local global profession growing up, of a clientele who are now global, and of a sport culture evaluating its identity in relation, in relation to class and gender. This is KSKA Anchorage. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans. Our show today is Cowboy Professionalism, a cultural study of big mountain tourism in the last frontier. The speaker is Forrest Wagner, an assistant professor of outdoor studies at the University of Alaska Southeast. He's reflecting on his 12 years of teaching outdoor studies and discussing his findings from interviewing big mountain guides and their clients. We continue with Wagner. Authenticity is a central identity tension underlying Alaska's big mountain tourism. Guides believe they are the legitimate representations of climbing culture, and clients are not even aware such a distinction exists. As my demographics demonstrate, clients make 
on average, twice as much as mountain guides with more than 50% earning over $100,000 annually. It is a matter of economics that guides and clients work together. And this distinction is one of class identity. That some guides perceive themselves as more legitimate representations of mountain culture than their clients is interesting, especially because it is their profession to lead mountain trips. Clients hire them simply for that professional experience. Clients, on the other hand, do not need to work in the mountains to recreate there. And it's sexist. Yeah, so this, this industry is still gendered heavily toward men, and a glass ceiling exists, making it more challenging for women to participate. It's really frustrating. My sense is that the mostly male clients I surveyed are generationally, generationally biased against women in the outdoors, or for that matter, in positions of power. I've been teaching outdoor studies for over a decade, consistently with more female participants than male, and almost exclusively with female teaching assistants. I predict and am optimistic that the sexist contemporary gender dynamics will disappear over the next decade. The wave of the young women I've had the privilege to work with in their college careers will soon lead in big mountain tourism, as they do now in mountain sport and in diverse formerly male-dominated professions. The second historical moment the mythos of the frontier of intrepid and rugged individualism is not a motivation for mountain clients to come to Alaska, but rather an identity construction of Alaska mountain guides that relates well with the depictions of the region in early literature and in images promoted by the tourism industry. Some Alaskan mountain guides think they are frontiersmen and some Alaska residents think they are too, then it is no surprise that Alaska's historical moment is one of existential tension. The future of the region hinges on reevaluating contemporary notions of what it means to live here. Predator encounters are a test case for whether people really subscribe to an anthropocentric frontier mentality or an ecocentric mentality, one that allows animals equal place on the natural landscape. My involvement with the bear positions me as an exemplar of one of the claims that I've made here that experiences in mountains can produce or are at least compatible with a more enlightened worldview, up to the task of reckoning with Alaska's environmental precarity and its global entanglements. So if cosmopolitanism means not opening up the polis to others, but rather entering the polis as if it already were another's, entering as an other yourself, then it seems like a project looking at Alaska in a global context has to include not just the view from 30,000 feet or 20,000 310 feet, but the view face-to-face, or in this case, fur-to-skin. The state of Alaska currently has the opportunity to diversify itself from oil while encouraging a global community to recreate and invest here represents an unprecedented opportunity and one that Alaskans would do well to take advantage of. Like Alaska's big mountain culture in this historical moment, Alaska itself can reach deep, call up a little courage, and come of age. This cultural story of Alaska's mountain guides and their clients, of me and the bear, is in fact the story of Alaska identity in the 21st century. Thanks, I'll take questions. So you wrote an article in the Juno Empire back this last winter regarding climate change. What do you think there should be more um, or those that love the mountains and the mountain culture should be have a more of an activist-style perspective within the next decade or 
you know, decades to come, especially with the release of the IPCC report last week regarding climate change, should, you know, individuals that love the mountain culture, you know, go to protests and act, you know, have a more activist style, you know, perspective regarding, you know, global climate change? Yes. <laughs> I think that this ball is rolling and it's a hard one to get off of. Every time we get on an airplane or buy a piece of industrial meat, the as a age, if we call this late capitalism, it's 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 hard to stop. I have twelve years according to the IPCC report before the effects of carbon in the atmosphere right now are are gonna spin radically beyond what we really even understand. But I think my next Junior Empire article is going to be some kind of charge to myself where I challenge you to, like me, not get on planes all the time. Um, it's just not an e There is no easy solution. Part of the reason for that is that planes are time machines, and we travel from places to places, and, and that's accepted, that's the norm, that's almost the expectation. You want to work in higher education, you have to travel, in many cases, across the planet to report on your on your research at your at your group of, of fellow specialists beyond the position of privilege of getting on the airplane I mean the the thing that no one really is talking about is, is industrial agriculture and the lobby itself I think is a really powerful one but it's not it's not my field it's not my research what I what I understand is that that's a really major contributor of carbon in the United States and so maybe a first step, although not going completely vegan, although go vegan, is, is, is to reconsider buying that piece of steak. I was wondering about the women in your courses. Do they come in to the courses already knowing about the discrimination they're going to face, or is that something they learn through experience? Yeah, that's more the hashtag Me Too movement reality of the age. I, I don't want to be a buzzkill, but this is a power culture, and women and minorities, and anyone that basically doesn't look like me has a lot more real challenges. And as I get older, I see that more and more. Of a a friend, fell out to a professional who um, is as qualified or more qualified than any mountain guide or climbing professional in the world, who was turned down for a ranger position in Denali with no explanation. She was completely overlooked, and a man from the Tetons was chosen instead. And this was happening while I was in the hospital, and could literally track my frustration because the blood pressure on the machine would like go up and up and up and be like, take a deep breath. And I think it is changing. I'm optimistic that it's changing. I think the, the Kavanaugh hearings are important. But... I don't think that students coming into college necessarily think that there is such a thing as as gender discriminatory industries. Don't think that's the message that that we promote, but I think that's the reality and it's it's a hard one. But it is changing, partly because these old guys are going to die. They're going away. <laughs> and and people will still pay real money to recreate in the mountains while not necessarily having the skill set to do so. And also partly because increasingly they're only going to be guided by women. I'm not sure where the men are, but there aren't as many men as women in my classes. And so, so, so 
if only by time passing. But I think through conversations like these, it's frustrating. Forrest, did your study look at all at the economics of big mountain tourism? For example, how much it is now bringing into the state? A little bit. Uh, big mountain tourism is a fraction of the billion dollar industry that tourism is. So, you know, thinking about the Alaska Mountaineering School, that's a cottage industry in Talkeetna and employs 50 people a year. Those are good jobs, seasonal and full-time jobs. Thinking about Alaska Powder Descents, those are good jobs. There are maybe eight guides. But, I mean, the reality is this, this niche part of this industry is, is really small economically. Doesn't mean it doesn't contribute major carbon into the atmosphere. Doesn't mean that it's not attainable for students coming through our degree programs to participate in. In fact, it absolutely is attainable, but it's, it's pretty small. You know, it's, it's really small compared to, to cruise ship tourism. As far as, as, as far as the money that it's generating. But on the other hand, it, it does, with some creative patchwork, create uh, jobs and, and, and a kind of lifestyle income that a lot of mountain guides in particular identify with, where you work in the summer, you work seasonally, you're skiing, you're climbing, you have time off to sort of travel around and <laughs> climb and ski. And <laughs> yeah, hi. I've got questions in the back here. Uh, having lived here a long time and seen a lot of what I consider uh, uh, avoidable uh, deaths from risk-taking individuals uh, and seen no, not much progress on uh, <laughs> improving the uh, systems of even notifying someone when uh, most, many, many tragedies could have been averted simply by telling someone where one was going. Have you seen any progress in, in uh, helping adventure-prone individuals uh, become more uh, safety-aware or more um, easier ways for them to let people know their plans or whatever? It seems it could all be done somehow through some sort of a central uh, check-in agency or s something could be done better to avoid the unnecessary tragedies that keep cropping up around here and probably all over. Thanks, thanks for your question. I think that it's a question of scale. Uh, we, in general, have more trained people, have more people working, recreating, uh, after having a really solid risk management as foundational sort of training like the outdoor um, study skills and leadership certificate. But as a function of scale, the fact that more people are doing it means that there is the propensity for more accidents. And, and I guess the, the take home follow up is that these activities have inherent risks. Mountains are dangerous and rocks are gonna keep falling off them. It's a function of mass wasting and gravity. And so that's part of it. The other part is that the culture celebrates risk-taking, and that's, that's increasingly problematic for me as, as friends and acquaintances and, and people who I don't even know are dying pursuing this sort of mystique or mythos of, of mountain culture. And 
So there's, there's multiple answers to your question, but people are going to continue getting hurt and killed climbing and skiing, if only because there are more people doing it, but also because the culture, not what we're teaching here, but the culture venerates that. They put it on a pedestal. It's romantic. The more dangerous, the more aesthetic. Hi, Forrest. I'm just asking about uh, the cost of climbing Denali. There's so many mountains around that are free and maybe dangerous to climb, but I have a friend that visited from Israel, and he was interested in climbing Denali, and I said, I think it's expensive. But what drives the cost of climbing Denali? Well, a combination of things. It's still probably the cheapest seven summit on the planet. I mean, it is a public space. It's a national park. It's preserved, in theory, in perpetuity for us as a public commons. So we have a flight on, $650. There's a, a permit fee, $350. You have what I call the kind of upper mountain gear. So the, the big down parka, the puffy pants, the excessively warm sleeping bag that is necessary above 14,000 feet. That probably adds on another $1,000. And you have food and whatever the costs are of taking that week off of work. But when I was first thinking about climbing Denali, and try to put together a budget, I, I penciled it out for three grand. To guide someone up on a trip, it's, it's upwards of eight grand now. If you guide someone up and there's two other guides and they're just there as a, as a, you know, as a solo client, it's $35,000. So it's, 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 it's expensive, but in fact doable if it's a priority uh, for the individual. Denali is a great mountain to climb and reasonably safe. I don't want to give the impression that mountaineering is unreasonably dangerous because we, in fact, do it here. And this is even me as a survivor of a bear attack. It's, in fact, reasonably safe. Uh, those inherent risks aren't going to go away, but we can understand them and minimize them. So I don't know, Sherry, if that answers your question, but I bet you could still do it for three grand. This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is Cowboy Professionalism, a Cultural Study of Big Mountain Tourism in the Last Frontier. The speaker is Forrest Wagner, Assistant Professor of Outdoor Studies at the University of Alaska Southeast. We continue with questions from the audience. question kind of about your ODS students um, and the transformative effort they might undergo through your program because I think in a sense maybe we all kind of enter as the tourist and enjoying it in the outdoor sense and really wanting to kind of delve into the mountains but do you think you see them kind of evolve into the more of guide sense with the process of thinking and being in the mountains and not just like the hoorah of excitement with it? Hoorah! Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think it's worth to think about the spectrum. You know, Steve Lanermar teaches all the wilderness medicine classes, and he loves to talk about things on the spectrum, and that makes sense to me. But in the outdoor industry, on one side, there would be mountain guiding, and the other side would be outdoor education. And, and the outcomes are different. When a student enters the outdoor studies program, we don't want them to come back after their program. If you, if you show up as a, a client for a mountain guide, the guide wants the client to come back because it's a relationship and you continue guiding them. And so... So the education piece is, is a difference. We're trying to empower people with the skills, the environmental ethic, um, the group dynamic, the outdoor leadership pieces. 
to work together in small groups outside, make reasonable decisions, um, prepare themselves to fail, because part of this natural classroom is, is, is a really challenging learning environment. It's a, it's a poor feedback environment. We go out and we don't really know if we're doing anything right or wrong, because when something goes wrong, it's actually pretty unusual. Right? Like if you get caught in an avalanche and you've had all the avalanche trainings in the world, that's a really hard thing to reckon when you're well-trained, you're conservative, you're making, I mean, so, so the natural world is full of variability. It makes it interesting. Those are the inherent risks that, that we can minimize, but will never go away. And, and so when students come into the program, I don't think of them as clients. I think of them as people with voices that want this skill set so they can go on and live their lives. And what they do with the skills, that's up to them. But it's always remarkable to me what they actually do. That doesn't mean that clients don't have a similar um, importance in my, in my worldview, but they're different. They're hiring you, the outdoor leader, to take them and care for them. It's contractual, it's maybe natural you care, and it's a service leadership position with some bells and whistles, but it's mostly just a lot of hard work. Outdoor study students, whether they go on and work as outdoor professionals or they're just really savvy outside, different model, easier to stomach, honestly, more fun. I was struck in your presentation by your acknowledgement of kind of mountain culture's consideration of the inherent like potential self-annihilation. Um, and I wanted to ask this question kind of figuratively and more literally, especially in that first picture where you're climbing the knife edge. Like, do you show your mother those pictures? <laughs> She's watching. <laughs> I think my mom decided a long time ago to stop asking questions. <laughs> but I look at the knife edge, and to me, that's beauty. It's, it's interesting. There, there are ways to do it reasonably. I think other people look at it, and it's just this sort of media portrayal of outdoor sports as dangerous and reckless and... I mean, it took us a long time to even get on that thing because it kept avalanching, then it was raining. And That said, climbing a mountain like Logan, there's a certain out there commitment thing that is unlike really most anything we're doing in the Outdoor Studies program. That's a different, it's a different project. It's a different commitment level. My mom is a feeler. She's a giver. And... I can't really talk to her, but I try to because she she gets amped. She's like really excited. And, and I actually think of her kind of like the brown bear, honestly. Like I think moms are a real force to be reckoned with. That's, that's nothing to take lightly. And some of you are moms, I'm sure, and some very well could be someday. But yeah, my mom is, she's in a special place. But I think she stopped asking questions when I was in Nepal in 2003 because I couldn't call often and it costs money to use a sat phone. Hi, thank you for your presentation. It was really interesting. Um, I want to go back to the question about um, what you show about uh, the fact that it's still like a man-based environment. And um, I know you show that most of the clients are as well men. And so I was wondering if you see any trends in maybe more women being part of it and what you think could be done maybe to encourage more women to be part of those expeditions. I think it's changing, but on eight professional expeditions on Denali, 
I had two female clients. And having been on the mountain 12 times, and there's only a few more to add. And, and I told the story of my friend, the female climbing ranger. She eventually got the job, but it took the equivalent of whatever the um, harassment button or prejudice button is in the park service for her to get the job again, and she was most qualified. So to answer your question, uh, I think part of what's at stake here are masculinity codes wrapped up in mountaineering. I don't think it's particularly friendly as it sits right now uh, for women. Now, that's not the atmosphere that we're striving for in outdoor education or in outdoor studies at UAS, but when I mean, you look at the mid-20th century conquest, conquest of these high mountains in, in Asia and, and here in Alaska, and, and even look at, at the, the literature review I cited, almost all of those voices are male. And so I think some of what is going on here is this historical moment for outdoor sport. Um, I can only speak factually to my research, and there are very few but noteworthy female participants there. And, and I think that is the actual, by my observation, that is, that is the case. But I also think that it's changing. I think that they're the future of the industry. <laughs> I, I don't know where the men have gone. You know, there's interesting social science about, uh, called the Boys Project, but, but yeah, there are less men than women in higher education. And, and in general, this is me just punting, but it seems like women are doing better right now than men. And so regardless of the industry. I have one more question. Um, a lot of the literature you quoted was also from old white men. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering, not being from here, what role Native Alaskans have had in mountaineering in the ways that they have in other countries like Nepal. Oh, yeah, thanks. So in Alaska, the first person to summit Denali was Walter Harper, and, and he is Athabascan. He was Athabascan. And he was Hudson Stuck, the Episcopal um, missionary's protege, but he basically guided Hudson all over Alaska as an 18-year-old. And so in, in 1913, um, Walter Harper, um, Karstens, and Stuck climbed to the summit. And then tragically, he died uh, with his soon-to-be wife and the Princess Sophia wreck. And so Walter Harper's buried here in downtown Juneau. In Nepal, the Sherpani people, they're smiling, they're happy. It feels very Buddhist from my very Western uninformed lens. They seem very content. They're doing all the work. Mountain guiding there is really different. You show up, you look good, you got your sunglasses, and then these brown people are carrying all the stuff, making all the food, setting the lines. They're most likely to die if there's an avalanche because they're, they're the ones hanging it out there. They're barely compensated. So that's not a pretty picture of, of global mountaineering, but it's, in a, it's a reality, and, I'll, and I, I won't back off of it. It's something that's becoming a conversation along with uh, what feels like maybe a, a, a renewal of the social justice ideals of the 1960s. There's a lot going on right now, and, and so I, I remain optimistic, but... Hey, I'll just build on Matt's question and ask if you see an increasing awareness on the part of your clients of their relationship to um, climate or other kind of forms of environmental precarity that they're complicit in by being there. Not really. 
I think that mountain guides feel it, and that kind of class relationship makes that more alienating in some ways. But it's not exactly what I studied. It's a it's a a rich and timely topic, and this sense of climate is my current interest. I think that when I go to national parks, I see Europeans recreating the mountains. I don't, and this is again, this is anecdotal, but I don't really see Americans recreating the mountains. Um, For me, growing up in Fairbanks, uh, looking at the mountains, I felt called, compelled, and had these amazing parents that were taking their kids out on these long float trips, or we were camping at cabins in the White Mountains, and Fairbanks has this place, it's very, uh, Murray talks about it as this kind of whirring, buzzing hub, this little piece of civilization in the midst of this landscape of, of not much else. And, and so I don't need to tell my story as one of exceptionalism or of difference necessarily, but when I travel into the contiguous U.S., I don't see mountain culture in this sort of American way of, of, of this romantic dirtbag thing. I think, in fact, it's at a bit of a crisis. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans today on KSKA Anchorage. We just heard from Forrest Wagner, Assistant Professor of Outdoor Studies for the University of Alaska Southeast. His talk was titled, Cowboy Professionalism, A Cultural Study of Big Mountain Tourism in the Last Frontier. This program was recorded on October 19th at the Egan Library in Juneau. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.